have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Out of sync. Time's passing more quickly in some parts of the ship than slowing down in others. Out of options. The distortions are ripping us apart. Abandon ship. Out of time. We're giving her another chance to save her crew and herself. When Seven of Nine goes back to the past. I found the weapon. The future is fading fast. He's trying to destroy Voyager. Stop him. On the next Star Trek Voyager. everybody and welcome to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to talk about and we are going to see because this is going to be a video presentation we're doing a show about Star Trek ships. That's a very broad subject. Specifically we want to hit future ships. Let's put it that way so that I'll narrow it down a little bit more. We're going to talk about certain ships that appear in Star Trek that are futuristic for the sake of the show even though the show is a futuristic show to begin with. But the particular angle that I'm going to try to hit is a couple of specific ships that we've seen in some of the Star Trek television shows and try to go a little deeper into how they were designed in terms of the people behind the scenes, the concept artists and all that stuff, and the Eagle Moss representation of those ships, which is a company that has been doing some fantastic work for many years now. So we're going to hit a couple of those. And again, this is a video presentation, which is something we like to do every now and then. So let's get started. Television is not the truth. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. Today I want to talk about a couple of Star Trek ships that I have. This is from the Eagle Moss collection. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I kind of ran into the Eagle Moss collection more or less by accident. It was one of those things where somebody gives you a gift and you like it and you start looking into it and then there's more and then there's more and then you start buying them (laughs) and hopefully you don't lose your mind or your finances in the process. But Eagle Moss is a company that manufactures for Star Trek and some other franchises these miniature recreations of ships. They also have statues and other stuff, but primarily I think their bread and butter is the ships. And the way that they manufacture these, these are small. They make them, I don't know, I would say about four or five inches long. But they also have what they call the extra large version. So sometimes you might see the same ship, you know, built as a... I don't know, seven, eight inch version or a smaller version. I kind of stick to the smaller versions because they are uh, cheaper, obviously. And I like to have a certain consistency to my collection. You know, I'd rather not mix and match, but it's understood 
whenever you're collecting anything, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever, that it is going to be practically impossible to have everything in scale with itself. You cannot own a Star Destroyer and an X-Wing within scale to itself. <laughs> you know, you have an X-Wing the size of a, of a cigarette pack. Uh, that means you would have to have a Star Destroyer the size of, I don't know, a truck. <laughs> So you have to accept that the dimensions are going to be different. And that's basically what they do here with these ships. But they do kind of draw the line between the extra large and the regular, you know, versions. Anyway, another way you might know Eagle Moss, uh, because, again, if I understand this correctly, their bread and butter is the ships. That's where everything starts. And the other place where you might have seen the Eagle Moss logo is in books. Uh, there's a ton of books that Eagle Moss has put out, which is a lot of the art and the CGI renderings and all the background information on these ships that specifically they're selling. They've been compiling for a while now this huge series of books having to do with the artists, uh, you know, the conceptual artists, the, the final uh, looking ships, the ships of the Federation, the ships of the Klingons, they have a whole line of them. And a lot of that art that you see in these books comes from these smaller magazines that come with the ships. So in other words, what they did is they, they are taking advantage of the fact that they have all of this art that's being put together for these smaller magazines and they're turning them into books or vice versa, depending on whether or not the art exists in the first place. Sometimes they'll have to create it because sometimes these books will have certain ships that might not have been already been featured, you know, as actual miniature versions of the ships. The ships, when you buy them, they come with a very short magazine kind of booklet that gives you a lot of the background of that ship, not only the fictional background of what this ship means as far as the show that you're watching or the episode that it appeared on or or the movie that it is based on, but then the, the booklet also gives you a little bit of the behind the scenes of how this ship was designed, you know, who came up with the model, who came up with the drawings, who came up with, you know, how it changed. So it's a it, it's a little bonus item that I guess you can kind of factor it into the the price of the ship. These smaller ships usually go for about average about twenty five bucks. The larger ones can go anywhere from fifty to seventy five or even higher. I think I'm not entirely sure because I don't really own that many. I only own one, and it was a gift. But like I said, I try to stick to the small ones, and just like in my previous collections, you know, I try to create rules of how I'm purchasing these and 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 these rules are also going to be how I am going to try to talk about them to you. I am going to have some kind of a theme associated with these ships. Well, this particular theme that I'm going to hit today is ships of the future. Now, I do not own every single one and I also don't buy every single one, <laughs> depending on my focus collecting. I'm trying to kind of stick to the larger ships. I'm trying not to go into the shuttles. With that said, I will break my own rules every now and then, because if something is really, really attractive, I, I might get it. But for this particular slice of what I'm looking for, the first ship is called a USS Dauntless, and it has the designation of NX. Dash O one dash A. 
that's a very familiar number or designation, if you will, uh, that we'll talk about a little later. But anyway, this is from an episode of Voyager called Hope and Fear. Again, I don't want to go too deep into the episode itself because this is not what it's about. It's This is more about the ship itself. And basically what you have on the episode is there's a message that arrives that needs to be decoded to the Voyager. And Neelix recommends somebody from a race that he knows that he's very good or their race is very good at deciphering data. Let's put it that way. So they kind of meet up with this guy who's played by Ray Weiss. He also appeared in an episode of Next Generation called Who Watches the Watchers, if you remember that one, where I believe some of the uh, TNG crew is um, doing a non-invasive monitoring of a race and they somehow get caught and all of a sudden the prime directive is broken. And Anyway, I digress. But anyway, Ray Weiss, you might also know him from, he's been on a lot of things. Uh, If you remember RoboCop, he was one of the bad guys in RoboCop, but he's mostly, uh, I imagine, mostly remembered for playing the father of Sarah Palmer in Twin Peaks. Anyway, in this episode, he's this alien being who comes to help them, you know, with the issue, uh, the the, the deciphering this uh, uh, message. And it turns out that the message brings them to an area where there's a ship waiting for them. And what is understood is that this ship is there to help them uh, get closer to their destination. Remember, it's going to take many, 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 many years to get back home. And this would shave off so much more time. They could get the job done in a couple of months as opposed to many, many years. The ship is a Federation ship, but it's very futuristic. It's very advanced looking. It has the qualities uh, or the characteristics of the Federation, except it doesn't follow the usual typical saucer-ish kind of design. It's more, it looks, it kind of looks more like an arrowhead, as you could see. Well, cut to the chase. It turns out that this alien guy was not really there to help them. He's there to trap them because as a result of previous episodes where the Voyager made a deal with the Boar to help help them get through a section without being invaded by this other creatures, the species 8472, if you remember those, yada, yada, yada. This guy is upset because as a result of that agreement, the Borg, I think, destroyed his civilization. Uh, So he's there. It's a revenge. It's basically a revenge plot. And the revenge plot is that he's going to trap them in this ship and shoot them over to the Borg to have them be captured by the Borg. In the story, the ship is really not what it seems because of his technology. He's able to kind of mask, you know, what you're looking at. Again, the ship is not a Federation ship. It is what he would imagine a Federation ship would look like and then what they also perceive it to be. But anyway, that's how it works. In the episode, they they have the the most impressive thing about the ship is the fact that it can create these tunnels within space. So on top of them being able to, you know, fly really fast, you know, warp one, warp two, warp three, as they move through warp, the ship can also create almost like a sub-warp tunnel inside there where it could even go faster. That's why the estimate of a three-month trip back home. Now, the technology technically is still good. It still exists, I think. He wasn't lying about that. It was basically the destination that he was lying about. Anyway, that's not the point of this. (laughs) Anyway, so for the creation of the ship, the creators of the show turned to Rick Sternback, who was 
again, one of these artists who came up with the concept. And, and again, the way that they talked about it and the pictures that they shown you on the book stresses so much that, you know, obviously didn't want to go the way of, of, of a traditional, you know, enterprise kind of ship. And Voyager is already kind of halfway there, if you think about it, because Voyager already has that slightly arrowish head kind of uh, look to it. But they wanted to go even further. They wanted to go more arrow. At one point, uh, somebody mentions a bullet, that the, the, the ship should look like a bullet, super fast. Like, that's the whole point. It's the whole point of this ship, basically, is to be super fast. And in the initial designs that they came up with, they got kind of close. I think they're kind of close. What's funny about it is some of these designs, to me, look like a little bit like some of the Mon Cal ships from Return of the Jedi. The more aquatic looking ones i remember some from especially the, the one like this one right here but apparently from whatever design that they came up with um the only difference the only thing that it was trimmed or adjusted by the producers you know based on the concept art was the bridge the the original concept for this originally had uh, a little more of a bump on the top where traditionally Star Trek ships would display some form of a bridge. But for whatever reason, they decided, no, let's get rid of that because we want it to be completely streamlined, smooth, you know, so that it's more, again, of that bullet design of that arrow flying through, through the air kind of design. They had dabbled on previous episodes of Voyager with ships of that kind of look a little bit if you remember equinox the equinox and the prometheus which are ships that we will be talking about in the future so yeah this this isn't exactly new in terms of oh my god it is so different i am it blows me away and that's kind of how it works it's good that it works that way because seeing a ship of that shape shouldn't really blow you away that much you know as you know, seeing something that is completely, you know, like a big square. Obviously, you have square, you got board, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, this is the ship that they used. It worked out really well. And one of the best things about it, I think, in the design uh, was that when they were trying to figure out the color of the ship, they had options of making it look a little more coppery or reddish to make it more alien. But they wisely decided to keep it into that gray, that, that Federation gray, because that gray really is what sells you, you know, with the Federation motif, if you will. Now, I did want to mention something before uh, having to do with the designation. The designation of the ship, NX-01-A, is a little bit of a I don't want to call it a blooper, but a possible retcon problem. And that is because after Voyager, we had Enterprise. Enterprise has the original Enterprise ship with the designation NX-01. Now you figured, well, this is NX-01A. If you think about it, that means that this is the follow-up ship to another ship, which most likely would have been the 01. But the 01 later on becomes that initial enterprise. So you figure that, in again, in-universe, one of the characters would have said, well, that's odd. Why does this ship have that designation? That designation belongs to our historical, you know, uh, very famous uh, enterprise, the original enterprise. Obviously, that's why it happened. They didn't, at the time, they didn't realize that. Now, 
in reality, what happened, I don't know yet. I haven't researched yet how they came up with that number for the show Enterprise. So that is something that maybe they were inspired by this show. Maybe they looked at the number and they liked it. Who knows? But that's something that has to be worked out at a future episode, I think, at least for us. Now, another little trivia tidbit that appears in this book is that in the show, and speaking of the show Enterprise, apparently there is a time travel-y kind of episode in Enterprise where for a second, and, and again, they describe it as you blink and you miss it type of moment, you actually do see a ship that looks a lot like this. The model looks very much like it flying through the space at some point and they used this model i believe so it's really interesting that they were able to kind of work it into the show and maybe it was a a nod or a wink at the audience in terms of hey remember that ship with the same number as the enterprise so that could be uh, also one of the the reasons uh, that they actually chose out of all ships in the world to use this as a futuristic because it is it, i mean like i said it does look futuristic and it does to me look like an acceptable version of what a ship like this would look like if it existed in that particular time frame now granted it is not supposed to be futuristic for them. It's supposed to be a model of ship that they just hadn't seen yet. You know, it's it's like a secret ship, let's say, or something like that. Remember, there are episodes where they do find other Federation ships that are kind of lost in space like them. And we accept them as, yeah, it's Federation, even though they, they're brand new designs to us. But to them, whether they've seen it or not it is also acceptable to them. You never hear of uh, a character go, well, that looks really odd. I don't think that's real. Because <laughs> then the episode would only last, you know, 10 minutes. But this is a great example of what I'm talking about. Our next ship is the Eon. Now, the Eon comes from a two-part episode of Voyager called Future's End, part one and part two. This is an episode that, to tell you the truth, I wasn't that crazy about and this has to do with time travel episodes where the writers focus too much maybe on the fish out of water portion of the time travel element, which is perfectly understandable. You know, Back to the Future is all about how weird things are to Marty. The Terminator is all about how this robot is interacting with this past that it doesn't understand. Same thing with Kyle Reese. It's all about the, the, the you know, that fish out of water scenario trope. On these Voyager episodes, uh, they split it into two, which means they made it a lot longer. And as usual, as much as I love time travel related subject matter in films and television, I'm usually more interested in the mythology. This is kind of like Lost. If you guys remember, you know, when we used to discuss loss, there were people that were more into the emotional side of the characters and the character development. And there are people that are more into the mythology of the show, the unexplainable things that make things function. That's me. Well, when it comes to time travel related subject matter, I kind of lean towards that. You know, I'm always looking for more of that. I'm never usually satisfied with whatever it is that they give you. Here... You have a situation where a ship from the future, the Eon, shows up in front of Voyager and engages it in a battle because this future ship, we find out, determines that in the future there's some weird 
thing takes place where the entire solar system, let's say, gets wiped out. And as a result of that massacre, a piece of the Voyager shows up and they determine that that is what's responsible for what just happened. So this future temporal future division of Starfleet, of the Federation, if you will, which is something that kind of goes through a lot of these uh, episodes that we're going to talk, that we're talking about today, determined that they have to go on a mission to find the Voyager and to stop them from ever making this happen. So they find the Voyager and they're about to destroy Voyager and the pilot of that ship, which is Captain Braxton, very important name on a future episode. As Braxton engages the Voyager and they're fighting and fighting, they end up thrown back in time as a result of their battle. The Eon ends up somewhere in the 60s and the Voyager ends up somewhere in the 90s. So they can do the visiting modern times trope again. So the catch here is that because the captain of the ship, because Braxton ended up years before, it's going to take him about 30 years to catch up to the Voyager crew showing up on Earth. And by the time they run into him, he is obviously older, disheveled. He's practically a homeless person because he was institutionalized, because they thought he was crazy about the things he was talking about. And the amount of time that he spent on Earth, you know, not being able to fulfill his mission kind of drove him crazy. The entire episode goes through this. And again, I really don't want to go deep into the episode, but the, the whole point of the episode is that somebody in the 60s was able to retrieve the the ship that Braxton was on because Braxton, I guess he beamed out of the ship, somehow got out of the ship and wasn't able to locate the ship. But somebody else found it. And throughout these 30 years, this person became like a tech genius because of the technology of his ship, his futuristic 29th century you know, ship and has been making a lot of money. And he's kind of like a, you know, you figure he's like a Bill Gates kind of Google, Apple, Steve Jobs kind of genius. When in reality, he's just kind of stealing this technology from, from this future ship that he found. But anyway, the whole point of the show is that they get to a point where Starling, this, this tech genius guy, gets on the ship and he's going to try to take off and go to a different time to get away from the good guys, let's say. And that's when they realize that that is the problem. The problem is that this explosion that takes place in the future that destroys the solar system was initiated by somebody not knowing how to operate that ship and in the process destroying it, destroying it and destroying everything. So at the last second, they they're able to destroy the ship with Starling in it and the timeline gets reset so that Braxton goes back to being the young Braxton. He goes back to his time and Voyager also goes back to their time. But they try to see if they, hey, while we're at it, can you kind of put us back on course to where we were supposed to be on Earth? And like, no, no, I'm sorry, we can't disrupt the timeline. One of those scenarios. Again, this becomes more important with one of the other ships we're going to talk about today. Suffice it to say that the character of Braxton wasn't that memorable to me. I mean, I understand he is the the linchpin of how things happened. But it's a really minimal role when you look at this two-part episode, if you if you really think about it. The crux of the episode is, again, fish out of water. Look where all these crazy shenanigans take place. One important thing that I really liked about the episode is that because of the future technology that Starling is able to steal and 
capitalize on. The doctor, the holographic doctor, is able to leave the medical bay, the holographic confines of the medical bay, and have a device on his arm that will continue for the rest of this show of allowing him to go to other areas because he's got a mobile emitter now at this point. That's a very, that's one of the most memorable things to me, at least about this episode, is that it gives the doctor the freedom to now move around and interact with other people outside of the med bay. But anyway, let's move on to the actual ship. This ship is a Rick Sternback design. Once again, this is one of those ship of the weeks. And because this is a future ship, it doesn't have to follow the norms of what we've seen before. Uh, the ship is not a USS something. It's just Eon. So we're not sure exactly why or how or if there is a USS designation on this particular ship, which later on we'll see in some other ships there are. The basic design of the ship is an arrowhead, if you think about it. it's uh, he, he states that he was looking for a, you know, stealth fighter kind of design. Very flat, very pointy. It's a one-man vessel. Originally, he had the cockpit a little further back, giving it a little more of a nose. But later, they moved the cockpit a little more forward. They kind of built, I believe, the ship in reverse in terms of they had already shot or planned to shoot the cockpit scene. So the cockpit was going to be kind of tight. So they wanted to make sure that the ship was kind of small so that it would make sense that you would have such a tight cockpit. Because of its future looking design, it doesn't follow most of the norms of what we're used to as far as Federation ships, you know, no saucers, no nacelle separate engines anything like that no it's a it's an arrowhead you got your arrowhead and and it's all built in there however one of the things he states on on an interview is that in order to give it a federation a hint of a federation or a starfleet kind of air to it he designed the bussard collectors i'm not probably not pronouncing that right that you know the normal cylindrical part of an enterprise type ship you know that has that glowing red kind of rotates i believe sometimes Instead of designing that in a traditional place, he added two of those on each wing top, you know, at a 90 degree angle, as opposed to what we're used to seeing it. So that gives you a little hint of, oh yeah, there's a little bit of a, of a um, familiar feel to this ship. But other than that, it's a much darker ship. It does have that, like he said, that stealthy look to it. Those bussard sections, not only do you see them on the top, but the red ball itself goes from top to bottom of the wing. So if you flip the ship upside down, you see those light, translucent uh, red areas glowing. Very, very nice. But other than that, I think you would never normally be able to identify this as a Federation vessel. It's a much smaller design. It is not necessarily... Even though it kind of looks like a fighter, a jet fighter, but anyway, it is not a jet fighter. It's a time travel. It's a one-man time travel vessel because this particular version of the ship has you going with the ship to the location that you're supposed to be aiming towards as opposed to a more advanced version of a ship like this, let's say. But this is the, the, the one-man version of it. And what's neat about this this ship, at least in the show, is that... Yes, we do obviously see it in space like we do see all other ships, but there is a sequence where we do see it hiding inside 
a building, Starling's building, where it's kind of like in a research lab environment right before he takes off with it. You know, he breaks through a window with the ship flying. So you kind of see it, you know, in, in an environment that we recognize that's not space. It's the interior of a building, which makes it look a little more realistic. You know, I'm sure... They didn't have the time or the budget to kind of build, even though it's a small ship, to, you know, to build a, a, a mock-up of the ship. But the shot that we get, you know, inside the building, it works. It's, it, it's, it's, it's an acceptable shot of what this thing would look like if you had it, you know, hiding in your, in your basement or something. <laughs> so that kind of works. All right, the next ship I want to talk about is the USS Relativity which designation is NCV-474439-G. That's a mouthful. Well, this is a future ship, similar to the previous one that we talked about, and very directly connected, in a way, to the previous one because of its captain. In this particular episode, we are thrown into the assembly, if you will, of the Voyager. So this takes place a little bit in the past, and how there appears to be seven of nine uh, dressed up as a Starfleet officer <laughs> uh, running around the ship trying to do something. Well, the entirety of this episode is about how there's this temporal integrity commission in the future of Starfleet, whose mission is to basically fix problems having to do with time travel that have occurred in the past. This is an interesting concept. I mean, I've heard this concept before in science fiction. If you guys remember the movie Time Cop, <laughs> it's kind of like Time Cop. It's a department in the future that is in charge of fixing things. I'm sure they didn't invent it. I'm sure it's. I'm sure there are probably many, many more notable writers, sci-fi writers, who've invented this concept. But anyway, for Star Trek, this is what we're dealing with with this episode. And the episode is basically about how this ship that is in charge of trying to figure out a problem having to do with the Voyager being sabotaged, causing all kinds of mayhem in the time, you know, continuum, if you will, and how they kind of recruit Seven of Nine to help them solve this problem. So we get to see Seven of Nine jumping through time at different stages of the mission that we've seen, of the seasons that we've seen so far, and, um, you know, interacting kind of like a spy in terms of how she is dressed as a Starfleet officer at times. And in a couple of occasions, she even dies, but they have, they reset the clock in a way, and she can go out and do it again, try again. What's interesting about this episode is that the role of Captain is played by Bruce McGill. Now, he's a very, very well-known TV actor. I've seen him many, many times. But what's interesting about this is that this is what ties us to the previous ship that we talked about, because this is supposed to be the same character. But for some reason, they had to recast, different actor played him. So this is part of the reason why I, initially I never made that connection. This is a more well-known actor. Well, again, what's important is the ship, which is, again, what I'm focusing on. What I have here is the Eagle Moss version. It's a very slick ship, very arrow-shaped ship. It is supposed to be Federation because the Federation still exists in this future. It does differ in a way from our first ship that I was talking about on how when they are trying to design a ship that could be part of the Federation, but it really isn't, but it fools people into thinking it is. This ship 
looks absolutely nothing like what we're used to when it comes to Federation ships. This is supposed to be the 29th century. So this is way, 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 way in advance, you know, than anything we've seen before. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, they would have a ship whose shape and color would be completely different. Gone is the majority of the gray gunmetal ship colors that we used to for traditional Enterprise type of uh, ships. This one is more kind of like a very light blue with silver tips. There's hints of purple here when it comes to the Temple Warp Core right in the middle. It does have the main bridge right up front with a you know little, you see a little lump there, which is in the, in the other one we talked about how they, on the design, they purposely got rid of that. Here they purposely kept that. It's very, um, in a way, it almost looks like a fish. It has many, many fins in the back, propulsion system and all that stuff. Now, even though you can't see it on the ship itself, on the little magazine that they give you, you do see the insignia or at least the designation of USS Relativity with the number next to it. If you look at it from the front, like straight from the front, it reminds me a little bit of the Blackbird, the spy plane that exists, that existed, that we used to have, because it has that, that you know, again, when I think of the Blackbird, I think of X-Men, <laughs> but it does have that kind of uh, front-facing, very flat, very stealthy-looking design to it. And in the show, the way that it works is that because it is so advanced, they pretty much no longer have a need for shuttle pods. Everything is done through transporters within this ship. So when they sent Seven of Nine over on these missions to try to correct time, they just beam her over and they don't even have a transporter room. It's done right from the bridge. The bridge has everything. The hook of this particular episode is that the person that they're looking for is the captain. It's the captain of the ship, and he turns out to be the saboteur. But it is even unbeknownst to him, because it's him in the future. That's what makes it even wackier. And the fact that it's connected to the previous episode kind of gives it a little weight in terms of, okay, that's why he kind of goes a little crazy and does what he does in the future, which is based on all these previous events that we thought that they had resolved, you know, with his issues, you know, on that other episode of that other ship we talked about. But it's really, really cool how uh, they're brave enough to take that step to say, all right, this is so far in the future now that we're going to break from the traditional understanding and the traditional design of how we used to look at these ships and say, all right, we're going forward and this is how far we're going to go. And we don't really have to abide by any of the norms that we were used to as far as the design of a ship. Now, unfortunately, the books, there are no sections or notes on the design of the ship, you know, the real life design of the ship. However, Online, I found a chat, if you will, a thread uh, of people asking questions on, let's see, it's called the Trek BBS on trekbbs.com, where somebody brought up the subject of the relativity and how much they like the ship and everything. And lo and behold, questions were asked about how the ship came about, the inspiration for the ship. And Rick Sternback himself, the designer, we he's done as you probably heard his name before, he's done a lot of these ships for the show, talks about how the inspiration for the ship was a blended arrowhead sort of shape with a lot of roller coaster curves. Oh, I see what he means by roller coaster curves. All these bendy kind of curves along the hull. 
upon which were drawn mostly of the little details that were familiar with older Starfleet ships. Right. So in other words, I guess he's talking about how these curves and borders kind of connect the entire surface. I think that's what he means. Those details were evolved, but no one could still see what they were for. The buzzard collector caps were turned and stretched, but they're there. Uh, same with the phaser strips, lifeboats, etc. So in a way, I believe what he's talking about is that, granted that the shape of the ship is not a very commonly seen shape, but the texture, a little bit of the texture of how the surface and even the bottom all connects is still there. Plus the main components of how the propulsion works, you know, for a typical Starfleet design. Somebody else did also bring up the SR-71, the, 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 the X-Men flying ship <laughs> inspiration. And he responds also on this thread that no, he did not you know, try to mimic it exactly, you know, line by line. But again, if you look at it straight on, that nose staring at you, it looks very, very familiar. You know, you can try it out. Somebody also asks him about if he had designed into the ship some kind of a, a launch bay, like a shuttle pod bay area. And he says that he he didn't really do it because there was no need for that, you know, on that particular episode. However, the fact that the Eon ship is tied into this ship, he says it is conceivable that, yeah, it could be coming from this ship. It could have been deployed from this ship. So there you go. You have another very strong connection to the previous ship that we talked about. Up next, we have the USS Altair, or Altair, depending on how you pronounce it. This is a ship that is probably the most different looking of not only the ones we are talking about, today, but in all of the most easily <laughs> describable Federation ships, specifically Starfleet ships. And it is such an odd looking ship that ironically, <laughs> it actually never made it into any episode of the shows, of any of the shows. However, it does have a fictionalized background to it. The Altier is supposed to be a Federation ship that I guess it's supposed to be one of the earliest versions of a ship that is capable of traveling through time. Now, granted, the ships that we've talked about today, including the next one, they're more prominent in the show. But this one has been kept to a minimum in terms of how much they wanted to use it, you know, in a, what would be considered a canon manner. The ship itself looks nothing like what we used to seeing, but what makes it special and what makes it qualify for this discussion is the fact that it is capable because it is one of the earlier ones, you know, one of the first ones that were created. Not only does it have its normal standard warp core, it also has a temporal core, which allows it to move back and forward in time. The catch is that because this is one of those earlier ships, it can only travel a maximum of about 15 minutes <laughs> into the future or the past. So that is how they um, gave this particular design of a ship some cannon to be able to hang on to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and to let it exist within the, the realm of Star Trek. 
it has been mentioned in a one of the books, I believe. If you're into Star Trek's version of the EU, the ship apparently was mentioned in Star Trek Rough Beasts of Empire by David George III. Again, it's an afterthought. It wasn't really designed for that purpose. And let me talk a little bit about what the ship looks like. And obviously you could see it, but one of the things that to me stands out or it reminds me of a boomerang because it's basically a big wing with fins, which are more like the nacelles, uh, you know, at the tips and a long trail, a long tail trailing behind, almost like a horseshoe crab with a long tail or a manta ray. Yeah, the man- I like the manta ray version image too. It has this this trailing behind kind of a look to it. When you look at it from the front, it's very thin, very, very skinny. And it just has this very slick look to it. And it kind of fits, as far as I'm concerned, within the realm of, of Starfleet. It has the right Starfleet colors. It has certain sections that are very typical Starfleet-ish. The bridge, you can prominently see the bridge, the little little lump in the front where you could kind of tell that's where everything takes place. And the probably first place that it was ever seen, at least a picture of it that, that the, you know, fans could have seen it, it, it's in one of those ship of the line catalogs that we've mentioned previously where all of a sudden ships that never really make it or are very low, low tier kind of ships end up showing up in a very big, nice manner. Well, this is exactly where this ship had premiered. There's a picture of this ship kind of flying next to the Enterprise D. And I believe there was some kind of video also made for either a either a video game or a video version of those Ships of the Line series to give it kind of like a three-dimensional feel of what this ship would look like. But What's really important here is the reason why this ship exists in the first place. Back when Star Trek Voyager was in pre-production, Rick Sternbach was in charge of the majority of the conceptual designs of all the ships, specifically, you know, the, the lead ship of the series. But they sent out the assignment to have other artists kind of brainstorm if they could think of other designs. You know, remember that every show wants to be a little more original or a little different, obviously, than the previous one. They don't want to just copy the previous one. And with Voyager, what Doug Drexler and Mike Okuda did was come up with this design. Now, from what I understand, the the basic shape, the big giant flying wing, came off of the thought of what they call a car antenna. And to me, it's more of, I think it's a television car antenna. I remember seeing especially like limousines back in the 80s, let's say, having this boomerang-like antenna in the rear of the car. Very slick, very facing back, almost like a spoiler, like a miniature little spoiler. And that is the, the thought behind how this ship looks. And that is this arched, semicircular design kind of cutting through the air. And yeah, that I kind of see that. I can actually see that in the design. To me, it's I, what I see more in this design is a flying wing. The the if you remember in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the World War II 
German, and then I think later uh, the, uh, the Americans also looked into the, the that design to see if it could work. There's a whole history about the flying wing, but that's what it reminded me of. It's a gigantic flying wing. But with Voyager, they went in a different direction. Yeah, they went in a little more traditional, even though it is more slick. If you think of the the USS Voyager, it's a little more slick than your traditional circular saucers, and the the nacelles kind of fold up and fold down. So that was an interesting new design that they would they throw in there. So they really, really didn't go for this one. But just like most franchises, they kind of kept the design. You see if they could use it in the future. Well, when Enterprise came around. They threw this one at them, too. They're like, well, what if the original Enterprise <laughs> looks like this? Now, granted, in, in some of these interviews that, that you read, you could kind of tell, and they, they admitted that they knew this wasn't going to get anywhere, but they just wanted to kind of give them options, uh, you know, just in case they did want to go in a completely bizarre direction. But no, they didn't go for this one either <laughs> during Enterprise. However, what is interesting about this ship is that when they came to a future episode of Enterprise that deals with alternate timelines and the future. They wanted to design what they called an Enterprise J, which we'll talk about next. That's the next ship we're going to talk about. So this was, once again, one of those ships they pitched because it's supposed to be the future and heck, the future could be completely different. And what they had done was they had pitched this ship. They had pitched this ship kind of attached to a saucer, and then they pitched a completely different ship that didn't have any elements of the Altier easily recognizable. And obviously, they didn't go for this one. Once again, this particular ship did not make the cut. But if you look carefully enough, you can see elements of the Altier kind of still in certain areas of the Enterprise J, which again we'll talk about in a few minutes. But apparently, the design itself of having uh, the Altier being the bottom part of a ship and then a gigantic saucer on top became the design of what they call the USS Congo, which, again, is another ship that didn't get used anywhere, but it is out there in the ether waiting to be, you know, used at a future Need And also, it was apparently um, referenced in another one of these EU kind of books for Star Trek. But overall, again, I had no plans whatsoever of, of tapping into this particular ship for any sense. But the fact that it is just so slick, and it is technically, you know, as far as this show is concerned, one of the earliest time travel ships of Starfleet in the Federation. So it kind of works as far as I'm concerned. The next ship we're going to talk about is the Enterprise J. This, again, is a ship that, like some of the previous ones, is a futuristic ship. It's a ship that really exists in a future timeline. I don't want to call it an alternate timeline because it gets very confusing. But as far as the show goes, this one appeared in an episode of Enterprise called Azadi Prime. Now, it's a little difficult to give you the background, but I'm going to try uh, as far as the show goes, because I did promise in the past that I wasn't going to focus too much on it. But the bottom line is that they actually made an Eagle Moss version of this ship, and it deserves <laughs> a little explanation of what we're dealing with. On Enterprise, uh, one of the big storylines that they had towards the end of the series was the Zindi War. And what you got here is 
time-traveling beings that are involved in what they call a temporal cold war between one faction and the Federation and some other people all kind of fighting amongst themselves in the future, but it's spilling into different periods of time through history because this is a time travel cold war, if you will. So in this particular episode, what is happening is that Captain Archer is brought into the future ooh, <laughs> to witness a battle. And they're trying to convince them to not do a certain thing and do another thing. This way, things will kind of self-correct in the time continuum. But what's happening here is that the Daniel, the, the representative of the Federation's you know time travel division, brings him aboard the Enterprise J. So he can look out a, a window and witness part of this battle that is going on. So in a way... We never really get to see the ship from the outside. We only see the ship from one a particular observation window inside the ship. There is, however, a shot where against one wall, there's a electronic display, if you will, of the outside of the ship. And it looks exactly pretty much like what we have, you know, here in the final product. Like I said, I'm not going to get deep into the mechanics of the story because it is kind of convoluted. It was kind of towards the end of the series. I don't think it was very successful. This is the time where, if you guys remember Enterprise, and it, it's really hard to believe or it's really hard to blame. You know, Enterprise had ratings problems, you know, from the beginning. The show did not go in the direction that people thought it was going to go. And they tried a couple of typical Star Trek moves, if you will. Uh, you know, with, uh, for example, the character of Tapal. The female Vulcan, you know, they tried to sexy her up as much as possible. They they basically tried to pull a seven of nine to reinvigorate the young male fan base. And it just didn't seem to work as far as the ratings go. Let's put it that way. But anyway, around this time, we also had the events of 9-11 in real life happened. And this particular story arc that you know, spanned a number of episodes, was kind of like the answer to 9-11. It was a major devastating attack on Earth and how Archer is pulled into it and sent out on a mission to, you know, defeat this new super powerful enemy, you know, all by himself, pretty much. But the bottom line is that through this episode, they actually tapped into canon, if you will. Because, granted, this is a time travel episode, so is it really canon? In other words, if you're dealing with time travel, is it possible that because of his the events that happened and his involvement in these events, that in the real prime timeline of Star Trek, the Enterprise J, if there ever is an Enterprise J, will ever look like this? Good question. I don't know. The Temporal War is supposed to be happening in the 31st century. Archer is brought forward 400 years to the 26th century to witness this. So we haven't really seen what the 31st century looks like. We've only seen the inside of a ship in the 26th century. So that's how kooky this story kind of is and how big the parameters of the time traveling that's taking place, you know, really, really becomes. 
you know, is it conceivable that because this is, again, a time travel related story, anything after Enterprise could be an alternate timeline? So does that mean that the original Star Trek could be an alternate timeline and so could Next Gen and so could everything else? Yeah, but it's one of those things that usually when you deal with with time travel related movies or, or books or whatever, where you cannot think about it too much because it will hurt your mind. <laughs> it will hurt you and it'll confuse you and you'll run into all kind of paradoxes that will just drive you crazy. So let's examine the actual ship itself because it is a progression. I would go far to say that it's a very good progression, let's say, of what an Enterprise ship would be like. Granted, in the future, and as you saw with some of these other ships we talked about earlier, Federation ships seem to take a more aerodynamic, futuristic, alternate, different shape, which makes perfect sense. However, it is also possible, it is conceivable, that because this is an Enterprise ship, a ship that they purposely want to continue the line of the Enterprises, they try to keep it within the somewhat shape of an Enterprise, or the original Enterprises at least. And that makes sense. The Eagle Moss version of the ship that I have right here comes in two different sizes. As I mentioned before, I have the small version. There's also an extra large version, much, much larger than this one. But basically what you have, which you know you could pretty easily see, is that it is a traditional constitution class. I think it's what's referred to, the, the Enterprise, uh, where you have a saucer and then you have a section that comes out of the back of the saucer and expands into two, like a Y shape, if you will, with the two big engines on the sides, the warp you know, nacelles back there. So you do kind of recognize the shape, especially if you're looking at it from up top, basic shape. Now, the saucer section is not a circle anymore like in the original ones, and it's not even a pointy, arrowy kind of design like on some of these other ones, or even Voyager, or even some of the more modern enterprises. This one is kind of the opposite. It's kind of a, I dare to call it egg shape, but it's, it's wider than narrower, if you will, which is a very interesting, interesting design. No longer do we have a neck section that leads to the, you know, engineering and all that other stuff. It kind of all goes in one line, in one direction. As you can see it from the side, it just kind of keeps going. It keeps going. There is no dip anymore. And then the engines are a little higher than the dish itself. They kind of start to, you know, the struts, the connections the pylons, I guess, I forget what they're called. They kind of jut upward slightly to attach the nacelles. And the nacelles are very, very thin. That is one of the things that you notice about this ship, is that the rear of the ship, the non-saucer part of the ship, is very thin and very skinny. And in the design of the ship, from what I understand, from Doug Drexler, he talked about all these different designs that he had in mind. Now, granted, you got to remember, this is a television show, so it's not like a movie where you can spend months and months and months designing and experimenting and going back and forth and back and forth with the creatives of the show to see which design they wanted, make it a little more of this, make it a little more of that. No, he had basically gone to the archives, if you will, to some previous designs 
And what he found was that at first, and this is what brings us to the previous one we just talked about, he was trying to pitch them the Altier. So he kind of messed a little bit with that one. And that's the one, again, we just mentioned. The other potential ship that he was also looking at is a combination of the Altier and attaching a saucer section on top of it, similar to this final product of the J. And then the third one that he was pitching to them was more like what we have now, which is forget the Altier bottom piece, that boomerang thing, and just concentrate on the saucer and more traditional yet very futuristic back sections with the nacelles and all that stuff. And the creators of the show, uh, the executives, they said, all right, let's go with that one, with this one, you know, forget the Altier altogether. Let's go with this model. So that's what he kind of went with. He does mention in a couple of interviews how far he was able to push this design in terms of, you know what? It is so far in the future that we can really go crazier than usual in terms of, yeah, let's make it super skinny and super long. And, you know, even the, as you saw, the color is not even the, the, the gun gray, you know, ship that we are used to in the past, those traditional colors. It is more of a kind of like a steel color, which I don't know, maybe it's it's got something to do with the fact that we were dealing with Enterprise and same thing with Enterprise. Enterprise had more of a steel color than the than the lighter shades we're used to more in the future they also mentioned that there's a lot of sections where it's not like you see these little tiny pinpricks of light but they mentioned having like glass like big big glass windows where you could see light through them it's a completely different dare i say organic kind of design and and materials no longer are you seeing rivets and pieces being put together it's almost like these ships are grown or (laughs) excreted i don't know if you want to use the word excreted Uh, but it does kind of give you this um, new way of manufacturing that we can't even think about at this moment or even in star trek timelines that we're familiar with this particular ship, yes, we did. Like I said, we only see it for a very, very short time. It did appear, I believe, in one of those calendars that they produce every year, like Ships of the Line, I think they're called, which is funny because that's also where the Enterprise XCV that I talked about a very long time ago, that is one that also jumped over from barely being used or touched into the form of one of these calendars that are really cool because all of a sudden you get these beautiful renderings, whether they're hand-drawn or computer-drawn or whatever. And then somebody, I guess, doing research for a future episode of a future show says, hey, what about that? And that's kind of how this, uh, you know, these ships kind of stay with us in terms of, uh, you know, showing up in different manners. And in this particular manner, it's with Eagle Moss. Now, from what I understand, the ship was supposed to be on the actual episode prominently displayed, but I guess for production budgetary problems, as usual, it was scaled back to an interior instead of the exterior shot. So, you know, a lot went into the design, little known at the, you know, to the artist at the time that it wouldn't be used, you know, or it would so minimally be used that it's just unbelievable how, how relegated to the background it is. But... In a way, I think it's considered canon. So, you know, we have it and it's it's there now. 
One tiny, tiny note to keep in mind is that if you really take a close look at the saucer section on the Eagle Moss, uh, whether it's the small one or the large one, it just says NTC-1701. They don't even put the J on it. So I don't know if that's on purpose or if that's by accident or they didn't have enough room because it is tiny. I mean, the, the size of ship that I'm dealing with is very small. And in traditional Eagle Moss fashion, it is a combination of plastic and metal. The dish appears to be metal. The rest of the parts uh, that cross through the ship into the nacelles are plastic. Very, very fragile looking. I mean, they're so fragile because they're so skinny. And it's really, really cool, you know, how these are made and how different it looks and the different profiles for something like this that is so flat, it is just so strange looking at it right from the front. It's almost like the letter K, how flat everything is. But I think it's a fantastic design, and I wish that one day they would uh, bring it back in some shape or form. I'm sure you have so many other shows now that you could you could get away with it. You could you could sneak it in here or there, but because this is a future, you know, design, then you you got to be a little careful with it, unless you're dealing with a time traveler again. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Not very often that we get to do a video. It takes a long time, believe it or not. It takes a heck of a long time to put together a video, at least in the manner that I'd like to, you know, edit and all that stuff, you know, all the pictures, all the video, all the shooting. We tackled a couple of Star Trek ships, and it was a very specific subject, as you very well know. We, we try to go the time route, the, the futuristic time route, uh, in terms of ships that appear to be or are from the future. Luckily, I was able to find lots of background information on these ships. Lots of great books out there. These Eagle Moss books are fantastic. Not just the ships. I mean, I love the ships, don't get me wrong. But the books are also such a great library resource because they're able to access all this CGI conceptual renderings and, and material that, you know, you, sometimes you see one episode once and then you forget about it for the next 10 years. It never gets reused again. Well... These guys have access to all that stuff, and it's a great way to be able to keep up with them. But obviously, then there, there is the internet. There's so much more uh, additional information, interviews, behind the scenes, conceptual drawings, stuff like that, that could still, you know, you can supplement some of your knowledge there too. So I hope to do another one of these sometime in the future to highlight another cluster of ships that I have and give you some background information on those. So thank you guys for listening, or in this case, watching us. And we will see you soon here at GeekFest Friends. Bye-bye, everybody. Federation starships. Alien vessels. Collect them now with the official Star Trek Starships collection. Based on the original designs from the creators of the TV series, each hand-painted collector's model has been die-cast to be faithful in every detail to the starships that blazed across our screens, each displayed on its own pedestal with a magazine packed with fascinating Star Trek material. Part 1 at News Agents Now, just $1.99. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about!
Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>